Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another exciting episode of Dirty Sexy History. Now, this week, my voice is a little bit fried, so I apologize in advance. I'm also going to be pronouncing a lot of French words, uh, and for that, again, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm going to try not to uh, butcher anything too terribly, uh, and I thank you in advance for your patience. You know, when they say that when it comes to art, it's important not to hide the madness. This is something I've always tried to live by, at least for a writer. Uh, but let's be real, writing about syphilis and sex and cemeteries isn't exactly writing to market. But you know, that madness is what makes it real and it's what keeps me going. That line between genius and madness and artistic inspiration is also the common thread that unites all three of our segments today. Well, that and one very specific place and time. This week, I'm taking you back to 19th century Paris. First up, we're going to talk about Etienne Gaspard Robertson, the disturbingly sexy great-granddad of modern horror cinema. Then I'm going to tell you how to drink absinthe like a pro in preparation for part two, a look at the awesomely goth heaven and hell nightclubs of 1890s Montmartre. This is one of my favorite subjects. Are you sitting comfortably? Let's begin. Given how often horror is dismissed as a low-culture guilty pleasure, it might surprise you to hear that modern cinema was more or less invented because of it. That's right. When the first magic lantern was invented around 1650, it wasn't to immortalize the pensive expression of some 17th century Daniel Day-Lewis. People wanted to see skulls. The invention of the magic lantern, an early projector, is commonly attributed to Christian Huygens. His contemporary, Jesuit priest Athenaeus Kircher, cataloged its construction and uses in a suitably scientific manner, then secretly used it to project the image of death into people's windows to boost church attendance. Horrified by the sudden, inexplicable image of a skeleton with a scythe directly inspired by Hans Holbein's Dance Macabre, which at this point was still the equivalent of a best-selling coffee table book, Kircher's victims presumably didn't hear him giggling to himself in the bushes. Johann George Schroepfer exploited the commercial potential of the magic lantern when he used one during seances in his cafe some years later. Hosting the desperate and the curious, he projected the images of phantoms at key moments, the effect of which was no doubt aided by the fact that he also drugged the punch before they began. Horror-themed magic lantern shows continued to grow in popularity throughout the 18th century, but it wasn't until 1798 that the process was reimagined and perfected by an eccentric and charismatic showman known as Robertson. Let's start at the beginning. Etienne Gaspard, also known as Stephen Casper Robert, was born in Lege in 1763. From an early age, he was interested in art, and he was particularly drawn to macabre imagery. I mean, that's all of us, right? Right? Anyway, he was an eccentric child, and he later opened his memoirs by recounting an early attempt to summon the devil. So far, so normal. Let's see what he says. Who has not believed in the devil and werewolves in his early years? 
I confess frankly, I believed in the devil, in evocations, in enchantments, in infernal pacts, and even in the brooms of witches. I thought an old woman, my neighbor, was, as everyone assured, in regular commerce with Lucifer. I envied his power and his relationships. I locked myself in a room to cut the head off a rooster and force the prince of demons to show himself to me. I waited for seven to eight hours. I insulted, jeered that he did not dare to appear. If you exist, I cried, slapping my table. Get out of where you are and let's see your horns, or I deny, I say that you've never been. It was not fear, as we have seen, that made me believe in his power, but the desire to share it. That's right. That's a completely normal thing for a child to want. All right. Anyway, so what did his parents do? Well, they tried to put pressure on him to become a priest. You know, so far so rational. Anyway, he uh, went on and he studied the priesthood briefly, but Robert's heart was elsewhere, as you can imagine. Still wanting the devil's own powers of conjuring, he studied art, philosophy, physics, and the supernatural while at university in Leuven. A gifted physicist with a particular interest in optics, Robert began to experiment with projections in the 1780s. Over time, he discovered that he could produce a number of elaborate effects through various improvements of his own invention, not least of which was adding wheels to the machine and a system for moving slides that changed the size of the image projected to create the illusion of movement. In 1791, he moved to Paris to pursue a career in art, and he made it just in time for the revolution. Making ends meet as a tutor for aristocratic families, Robert, now calling himself Robertson, thinking it sounded more scientific, quickly found himself in a precarious situation. He bounced back and forth between Paris and Belgium for a couple of years until he returned to Paris and tried to make himself useful to the French government when France declared war with Britain in 1796. Using his background in optics, he gave them plans for a giant mirror-powered death ray inspired by the myth of the mirrors of Archimedes and designed to use the power of the sun to set fire to the British fleet from a safe distance. They ignored him. Undeterred, Robertson spent the next two years working on improvements to the existing magic lantern design. He painted his own slides and found that giving his hand-painted ghouls black backgrounds made them appear to float in midair when projected in the dark. He experimented with different light sources and methods of movement, projecting the images onto different surfaces. This became the groundwork for the show that would eventually make his name. Armed with modified magic lanterns, dozens of hand-painted slides, an argand lamp, and a deadpan sense of humor, Robertson debuted his phantasmagoria at the Pavillon de l'Echequier in January of 1798. One audience member described the performance. The members of the public, having been ushered into the most lugubrious of rooms, at the moment the spectacle is about to begin, the lights are suddenly extinguished and one is plunged for an hour and a half into frightful and profound darkness. It's the nature of the thing. One should not be able to make out anything in the imaginary region of the dead. In an instant, two turnings of a key lock the door. 
Nothing could be more natural than one should be deprived of one's liberty while seated in the tomb, or in the hereafter of Acheron among shadows. Robertson explained that the specters were only illusion, and presented the show as a physics experiment, but he had come prepared. He offered to raise the dead, and when audience members shouted out requests, he had a slide to suit each one. For every request, he would throw what appeared to be a handful of butterflies or a chalice of blood onto the fire, then an image of the deceased, or someone who could be seen as such, would swoop in from the shadows to astonish the crowd. People attempted to embrace the images, while others drew swords. When the audience left, they were terrified, convinced that they had seen real ghosts despite Robertson's explanations. Though he'd asserted that he was only a physicist, people genuinely believed that he was a necromancer. This created such a stir that the show was investigated and shut down by the authorities because they were genuinely concerned that Robertson could bring Louis XVI back to life. Once again in an awkward position, Robertson was forced to temporarily flee for Bordeaux. Once the initial panic had died down, Robertson was able to return to Paris and begin his show in earnest later that year. As impressive as his first shows were, he was able to fully showcase his skill and imagination in a new location. He rented out the Capuchin Convent, a derelict ruin in a convenient location. Only about 200 years old, it had been abandoned and used as a cesspit during the Revolution. By 1798, it was a crumbling, picturesque shell more than suited to his purposes. Best of all, to get to the part where the show was held, you had to walk through a graveyard. From arrival to departure, the whole experience was unnerving. The old convent was falling apart, and it was already known for the sex workers who operated in the crypts. Arriving at night, audience members would have to pick their way around damaged gravestones in the dark. Inside, the rooms were draped in dark fabric and painted with esoteric symbols, displaying scientific oddities and optical illusions. The last stop before the show was the Gallery of the Invisible Woman, which showcased an empty glass coffin suspended in the air. The coffin was supposed to contain an invisible woman, who answered questions and chatted to new arrivals. The voice actually came through a concealed tube designed by Fitz James, who was Robertson's ventriloquist friend, and it was operated by a female assistant. After the final gallery, the audience descended into the crypts. Robertson was a charismatic host, but he made the atmosphere work for him as well. Filled with incense and the eerie, otherworldly sound of a glass harmonica and funeral bells, the crypts must have been terrifying. Surrounded by walls covered in velvet and bones, they sat on old graves until Robertson himself entered and pointedly locked the doors before addressing the crowd by the light of a single sepulchral lantern. The experiment which you are about to see must interest philosophy. The two great epics of man are his entry into life and his departure from it. All that happens can be considered as being placed between two black and impenetrable veils which conceal these two epics and which no one has yet raised. 
but the most mournful silence reigns on the other side of this funerary crepe, and it is to fill this silence, which says so many things to the imagination, that magicians, sibyls, and the priests of Memphis employ the illusions of an unknown art, of which I am going to try to demonstrate some methods under your eyes. I have offered you specters, and now I am going to make known shadows appear. At this point, he blew out the candle, because of course he did. And then he finished. Citizens and gentlemen, I have promised that I will raise the dead, and I will raise them. Suddenly, the crypts were overwhelmed by the sound of rain, thunder, and funeral bells. Lightning appeared to strike, illuminating death himself, emerging from the shadows and floating through the audience with a scythe in his hand. If nothing else... Robertson knew how to make an entrance. The show was about an hour and a half, and it was made up of several scenes introduced by Robertson on the themes of love, death, and resurrection, incorporating ancient gods and figures from history and mythology. Between the ghosts and the dancing demons, the story of Eros and Psyche was told. Isis and other mystery goddesses were honored, and Hades and Persephone presided over everything. The graces were summoned, only to degrade into skeletons before the startled audience, and a woman representing love and death was a common feature, appearing throughout to tease the audience until she was killed by the fates, only to be resurrected with rose petals near the end. This was no ordinary slideshow. Robertson's innovation and mastery of the magic lantern produced effects difficult to imagine even now. The scenes he created were elaborate, detailed and animated. Between the speed of the changing slides, variable depth, and visual effects, Robertson had all but created early 3D cinema. Multiple devices hidden by screens projected monsters and ghouls onto walls, smoke, and special lengths of canvas and gauze that were treated with wax for translucence. Ventriloquists and sound effects brought them to life in ways people had never before experienced. The ghosts appeared so real that audience members tried to fight them. This was exactly what Robertson was going for. He later wrote in his memoirs, I am only satisfied if my spectators, shivering and shuddering, raise their hands or cover their eyes out of fear of ghosts and devils dashing towards them, if even the most indiscreet among them run into the arms of a skeleton. It was known to happen. The shows could be so frightening that one contributor to the Amis de Loire advised pregnant women to avoid them for fear of miscarriage. Given their reputation, there was some concern that shows would result in riots or hysteria, but Robertson had everything under control. Shows ran the same length every night, and everything was always shut down by 10. Not one to miss an opportunity for a strong conclusion, Robertson ended his shows the same way. Addressing the audience a final time, he said, I have gone through all the phenomena of the phantasmagoria. I have unveiled the secrets of the priests of Memphis, shown you what is occult in physics, but it remains for me to offer you one more thing, which is only too real. Those of you who have perhaps smiled at my experiments, those who have experienced a few moments of fear, here is the only truly terrible spectacle, the one wholly to be feared. Strong men, frail men, 
monarchs and subjects, believers and atheists, beautiful and ugly. Here is the lot which awaits you. This is what you will be one day. Remember the phantasmagoria. The light suddenly returned to reveal a skeleton on a pedestal in the middle of the room. Subtle, he was not. But the audience loved it. Based in the convent until 1804, the convent itself was demolished in 1806, the phantasmagoria made Robertson a very wealthy man. So many competitors attempted to copy his show that he was forced to patent his version of the magic lantern, the Phantoscope. Through the subsequent legal action, Robertson was obliged to reveal his technical secrets, which, even when they were known, could never quite be replicated by anyone else. Despite copycat shows popping up all over Europe and America, Robertson himself enjoyed a 40-year career touring the world, writing his memoirs, and pursuing his interest in the science of ballooning, making 59 ascents in several different countries during his lifetime. In 1799, his mistress, Eulalie Cawon, gave birth to their first child, a son named Guillaume Eugène. Robertson married her in 1804, and their second son, Demetrius, was born in 1807. Eulalie and their two sons accompanied Robertson on his world tours, spending time in Prague, Vienna, and Russia. In Paris, they lived at number 12, Boulevard Montmartre, now a Café Zephyr, until Eulalie's death in 1813 at the age of only 34. Their son Eugène later became a noted balloonist in his own right. Until his death in 1837, Robertson asserted that he was first and foremost a physicist, but in his memoirs, he reflected on how his early desire to attain the devil's powers had guided his life. I finally adopted a very wise policy. Since the devil refused to communicate to me the science of creating prodigies, I would apply myself to creating devils, and I would have only to wave my wand to force all the infernal cortege to be seen in the light. My habitation became a true pandemonium. Robertson had become a legend in his own lifetime. In an article written in 1855, Charles Dickens summarized his importance to popular science. He was a charmer who charmed wisely, a born conjurer inasmuch as he was gifted with a predominant taste for experiments in natural science. He was a useful man enough in an age of superstition to get up fashionable entertainments at which specters were to appear and horrify the public without trading on the public ignorance by any false pretense. Robertson was one of many great scientists who sought to beat back the ignorance and superstition of his day by using his science to entertain as well as educate. He is, in a very real sense, the forefather of all those today who seek to bring science to a larger popular audience. For that, at the very least, he deserves to be remembered and acknowledged by scientists today, as well as all those who believe in bringing scientific knowledge to the public. Robertson's legacy long outlived the Enlightenment. Today, Robertson is widely regarded as an important forerunner of modern cinema, and his grave is one of the most visited monuments in Père Lachaise. Rather than featuring the man himself, the scene depicts his audience cowering before the phantoms he brought to life, just as he would have wanted.
on that note, I'm going to take it over to my next segment in which I'm going to try to explain to you how to drink absinthe like a 19th century Parisian. God help us all. As you know, I like to find parallels between history and the present day to bring the past to life in a more practical way. Studying history is great, but there is nothing quite like experiencing it for yourself to give you a greater appreciation for the day-to-day reality. But today, I'm not going to teach you how to knit or throw your own pottery. Oh no. Since we're in 19th century Paris this week, I'm going to teach you how to drink absinthe. If you've ever seen anything set in 19th century Paris, you've probably heard of the Green Fairy, a legendary spirit known to inspire great works of art and drive people to madness. Did it deserve its reputation? Well, yeah. (laughs) The main ingredient that gave absinthe its flavor was wormwood, a plant that had been used in traditional medicine for centuries for everything from stomach upset to unwanted pregnancy and even malaria. The name Wormwood appears in the Book of Revelations, which is always a good sign, obviously, as a star that falls to earth and makes the water bitter. Interestingly enough, bitter water was also the biblical euphemism for a substance with abortifacient properties, something that applies to Wormwood as well. But I digress. The trouble with Wormwood is that as a cure-all, it wouldn't exactly be approved by the FDA. It's classified as a neurotoxin, and side effects of consuming too much can include seizures, kidney failure, restlessness, insomnia, nightmares, hallucinations, dizziness, tremors, cardiac abnormalities, paralysis, death, and writing classic Gothic literature. It's enough on its own, but it didn't stop there. They added alcohol to it. But they added a lot of alcohol to it. It wasn't uncommon for absinthe to contain 75% or more alcohol by volume, and some was even as high as 90%. For the sake of comparison, Everclear is only 95 Between the wormwood and the alcohol content, you can see how people could literally drink themselves blind. Although absinthe is widely thought to have been invented in the 18th century, common household cookbooks from the 17th century also included recipes for homemade wormwood spirits that would have come out more or less the same. Still, it was 19th century Paris that really ran with it and made it its own. Which is why today I'm going to talk you through a 19th century absinthe ritual that you can recreate at home. But first, a couple of important points. Most absinthe doesn't have wormwood in it anymore, so it's safer than it used to be. However, some brands do still have up to 90% alcohol by volume, so this is not something that you should be drinking as shots. Absinthe is meant to be drunk diluted by water, and you wouldn't drink the Coke syrup straight out of the pop machine without adding soda to it, so don't drink absinthe straight either. Finally, if you don't drink but want to know what it tastes like for the sake of research or just curiosity, 
that's okay too. You can get a similar effect by dissolving an aniseed hard candy and a piece of black licorice in a glass of water. If you're feeling fancy, you can use a bit of food coloring to dye it green as well. For everybody else, let's get started. For this, you'll need a glass of your choice. It doesn't have to be an absinthe glass unless you're feeling a little extra. A jam jar is just as good. You'll need an absinthe spoon, which is a long, flat spoon with holes cut into it that fits over the top of your glass. This sounds really specific, but they're actually very easy to find. They have them on Amazon for all of $2. <laughs> You'll need some absinthe of your choice, sugar cubes, and a pitcher of cold water. First, you pour a measure of absinthe into your glass. Then, you put the spoon across the top of the glass and put the sugar cube on top of that. Finally, you carefully pour or drip the water onto the sugar cube. The sugar dissolves slowly as the water drips through it and into the glass. Ideally, you want about three times as much water as absinthe, but bars in Paris used to serve absinthe with all of the components so customers could make it as strong or as weak as they wanted. As the water mixes into the drink, the less soluble ingredients in the spirit come out, making it a pale, milky green. Drink it slowly while playing the piano or writing something so saturated with multi-sensory longing that the paper drips onto the floor. With fans like Charles Baudelaire, Edgar Allan Poe, Eric Satie, and Oscar Wilde, you certainly wouldn't be the first. Now that you've got your drink ready, we're going to take it back to 1890s Montmartre. In Bohemian Paris of today, a kind of travel guide to the nightlife of Paris in 1899, William Chambers Morrow describes Montmartre as that strange Bohemian mountain with its eccentric, fantastic, and morbid attractions. And that's a pretty good start. It was home to the Moulin Rouge, Le Chat Noir, and the famous stairs of the Rue Foyatier and the Sacré-Cœur. Now one of the most recognizable parts of Paris, Montmartre was the red light district, once home to poisoners and occult practitioners. By the 1890s, it was inhabited by countless sex workers, as well as some of the most influential writers, musicians, and artists of the late 19th century. So much of Western art and literature can be traced back to Montmartre in the 1890s that it's really worth an episode of its own. We'll get there eventually, but today we're going to look at how Robertson's Phantasmagoria continued to influence the nightlife of Paris long after he passed away, taking on a new and exciting form, namely a few of Montmartre's hottest night spots, the magnificently goth heaven and hell nightclubs known as the Cabaret du Ciel, L'Enfer, and the Cabaret du Néon. The Cabaret du Néon, or the Cabaret of Nothingness, was the closest to Robertson's original vision. If you were thirsty after a long day of morgue tourism, you could pull up a bench at a coffin of your own in the bar decorated with human bones. Every aspect of the decor had been chosen to make an impact. The entrance was draped in heavy black curtains with white details, the same ones that hung in the houses of the dead around the city. Even the iron lanterns gave off a sickly green light, giving anyone who passed beneath them the pallor of a corpse. 
The drinks themselves were named after poisons and diseases, and they were served in cups shaped like skulls. The waiters were dressed as monks and pallbearers. After a glass of spitting tuberculosis, you could proceed into the adjoining room for entertainment of another kind. With the Pepper's Ghost illusion, the bar used light and a series of carefully angled mirrors to create some very alarming effects, not unlike Robertson did decades before. While Pepper's Ghost is still great at simulating apparitions, Neant took it a bit further. Seated on coffins, the guests would watch as a young woman wrapped in a shroud appeared to fully decompose into a skeleton, then slowly come back to life. How they managed it, we can only guess, but they did recreate the experience for their guests. Anyone could pass through the coffin, decompose, and be brought back to life in Neon's Cave of the Dead. First established in Paris on the Boulevard Rochechouart as the Cabaret de la Mole, or the Cabaret of Death, in 1892, it relocated to the Boulevard de Clichy, and it took the name Neant, or Nothingness, because apparently it was the name frightening the residents and not the chandeliers made of real human bones. In spite of the grim theme, contemplation of one's own mortality was not the aim. Or it didn't stop there, at least. Neant was above all a place to hook up. <laughs> Whether sipping Asiatic cholera in the bar or taking in the show in the Cave of Gay Ghosts or the Cave of Sad Spectres, guests were known to engage in a fair bit of PDA. Secret Montmartre explains it better. It is a constant of eroticism to be bound to the ephemeral and to the death. The show does not discourage the libido of spectators who do not forget that in Pigalle, sex has the last word. We kiss each other. We caress each other under the empty gaze of the skeletons. They're kind of talking me into it. <laughs> After passing through the coffin and being dramatically reanimated at Neant, you could stagger a bit further down the Boulevard de Clichy to the Cabaret du Ciel, the Cabaret of Heaven, or L'Enfer, which was hell, just beside it. If you'd been good or didn't mind a fairly blasphemous drinking session, you might make it up the stairs to Le Ciel, where you would be greeted by angels, priests, and St. Peter dripping holy water on you from above. At least I hope that's holy water. If the nearly naked angels cavorting to harp music wasn't enough to keep you entertained, you could listen to their naughty confessions or watch them perform scenes from Dante's Inferno. It must have been quite a scene. Some of the angels were also dancers at the Moulin Rouge. Bizarrely, Luciel also had a massive golden pig known as the Golden Porcus, and it was worshipped like a deity, decorated in flowers and surrounded by candles on a nightly basis. There's a picture of this, and it is definitely going on our Instagram. Like Neon, Luciel had their own names for common drinks. Morrow describes his experience. Brothers, your orders, command me thy servant, growled a ferocious angel at our elbows, with his accent de la villette and his brass halo a trifle askew. Mr. Tompkins had been very quiet, for he was wonder in the flesh, and perhaps there was some distress in his face, but there was courage also. The suddenness of the angel's assault visibly disconcerted him, and he did not know what to order. 
Finally, he decided on a verre de chartreuse, green. Bishop and I ordered box. Two sparkling draughts of heaven's own brew and one star dazzler, yelled our angel. Thy will be done, came the response from the hidden bar. Throughout the night, they would invite guests to become angels and suspend them on wires from the ceiling, allowing them to fly above the other patrons until Father Time appeared with his scythe to collect tips and send them on their way to l'enfer. As over-the-top as Neant and Le Ciel must have seemed, l'enfer was another story altogether. Just downstairs from Le Ciel, it couldn't have been more different. As Morrow writes, We passed through a large, hideous, fanged, open mouth in an enormous face from which shone eyes of blazing crimson, red-hot bars and gratings through which flaming coals gleamed appeared in the walls within the red mouth. Near us was suspended a cauldron over a fire, and hopping within it were half a dozen devil musicians, male and female, playing a selection from Faust on stringed instruments, while red imps stood by, prodding with red-hot irons those who lagged in their performance. Crevices in the walls of this room ran with streams of molten gold and silver, and here and there were caverns lit up by smoldering fires from which thick smoke issued and vapors emitting the odors of a volcano. Flames would suddenly burst from clefts in the rocks, and thunder rolled through the caverns. Numerous red tables stood against the fiery walls. At these sat the visitors. Mr. Tompkins seated himself at one of them, Instantly it became aglow with a mysterious light, which kept flaring up and disappearing in an erratic fashion. Flames darted from the walls. Fires crackled and roared. One of the imps came to take our order. It was for three coffees, black, with cognac. And this is how he shrieked the order. Three seething bumpers of molten sins with a dash of brimstone intensifier! The glasses glowed with phosphorescent light, and dapper men dressed as the devil would make the rounds and tell guests which of their sins had led them to eternal damnation. From there, you could go to the hot room, where a contortionist would change from a snake to a devil and back again. Morrow writes that he was disappointed to find that although the walls appeared to be half-melted, the hot room was disagreeably chilly. If it seems like these clubs go together a little too well, it might not surprise you to hear that Le Ciel and L'Enfer were owned by the same man, a former literature professor named Antonin Alexander. Alexander himself appeared as the devil in L'Enfer, where he would heckle the punters with lists of their sins. And speaking of sins, I want to describe his outfit to you, just so you understand. It looks like a velvet stage costume of, like, Elizabethan balloon shorts, tights, and a cape. It's more kind of old-school Shakespeare than Tom Ellis and Lucifer, sadly. It's a bold look. I'll post photos of it on Instagram. Yes, there are absolutely photos. And I'm sure that you'll agree that Alexander is clearly living his best life. And why shouldn't he? He quit his job as a teacher to become a successful nightclub owner and entertainer who got to wear horns and harass his customers on a nightly basis. It doesn't get much better than that. And you can tell by his expression that he knows it. After Deant was moved to the Boulevard de Clichy in 1892, Lucille and L'Enfer joined it in 1896. Jules Clarity, then director of the Théâtre Français, 
viewed the clubs as essential to understanding Belle Epoque Paris and described them as putting Dante's poem within walking distance. Now, I have to admit, I never imagined Inferno as a street of themed bars catering heavily to tourists, but it makes perfect sense. A little tamer, maybe, but it gave people flirting with nihilism a safe, cheeky way to stare into the proverbial void with a cocktail and some company. Like Robertson's Phantasmagoria almost a hundred years prior, fear got people excited, a phenomenon well-documented throughout the 20th century and beyond. Even after its heyday at the turn of the 20th century, L'Enfer continued to be a place of interest. André Breton's surrealists met above it in the 1920s, and eerily enough, serial killer Guy Georges was caught at the site in 1998, where he spontaneously confessed inside the same building where a costumed devil once confronted visitors with lists of their sins. In case you're curious, Le Ciel and L'Enfer were at 53 Boulevard de Clichy, and Neant was at number 34. Today, 53 is a monoprix, and 34 is a fully naturist swinger sauna. Plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. The more things change, the more they stay the same. This week, I'd like to give a shout out to the Concordia language villages in northern Minnesota, specifically Lac du Bois, where I spent a couple of summers about 20 years ago learning the French I would eventually need to tell you all about people hooking up in death-themed dive bars of the 1890s. Thanks, guys. And they say you don't learn anything useful at summer camp. Also, a huge thank you to our lovely patrons via Patreon, namely Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, and Jessica Miller. You are absolute stars, and I love you all more than words can say. We do also have some fun new extras coming to Patreon if you'd like to contribute to our research fund. Very soon, I'll be uploading my first bonus travel podcast where I will talk about history tourism from increasingly inappropriate places. Check it out at patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. As always, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating or review because it really helps us out. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dirty Sexy History. All photos from today's episode can be found on our Instagram, and more information about these subjects can be found on our website at DirtySexyHistory.com. This episode of Dirty Sexy History was written, researched, recorded, produced, vision boarded, and probably mispronounced by me, Jessica Kale. I'd like to apologize to France and credit my sources, which include the Academy Royale de Sciences, des Lettres et des Beaux-Arts de Belgique, Biography Nationale, 20 et 1, 1907. Ex Theodore Barber, Phantasmagorical Wonders, The Magic Lantern Ghost Show in 19th Century America, Film History, Volume 3, Number 2, 1989. Charles Dickens, Robertson, Artist and Ghosts, Household Words, number 253, January 27, 1855. Laurent Manoni and Ben Brewster, The Phantasmagoria, Film History, Volume 8, number 4, 1996. William Chambers Morrow and Edouard Cousseau, Bohemian Paris of Today. 
Etienne Gaspard Robertson, Memoirs, Skull in the Stars, How Etienne Gaspard Robert Terrified Paris for Science, February 11th, 2013. See you next week.